Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast. I'm Sarah Hill, Associate Editor. Today's program is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Today, I'd like to introduce Darren Redfern, Nebraska Extension Forage and Crop Residue Specialist. Darren will be discussing grazing cover crops. Welcome to the podcast, Darren. Thank you, Sarah. I'm very happy to be here today. So Darren, to get us started, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, uh, I'm kind of a boring kind of guy most of the time. I uh, have a background in uh, forage and pasture management. Uh, Currently, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Agronomy and Horticulture at the University of Nebraska located in in Lincoln. Uh, My specific title is a long one. It it covers quite a bit bit of territory, but my official title is is currently listed as Forage and Crop Residue Management Specialist. Uh, And with that comes uh, everything forage management and and crop residue management, primarily from a, a forage management and grazing management standpoint. Okay, very good. Sounds like you're the the perfect kind of guy to talk to about grazing cover crops then. Oh, I I hope so. (laughs) Let's go ahead and and jump right in. So from an economic perspective, how can grazing cover crops help livestock producers? Yeah, there's a a couple of things. And and, I mean, this encompasses a a broad range of of territory there. Uh, One of the Things that's unique about my position is I also collaborate quite closely with uh, with the ruminant nutritionist and animal scientist, and also an ag economist. And then these are some of the things that that we always talk about. From uh, you know, is is what makes these these systems economical? And so there are a lot of considerations that that go into helping livestock producers, primarily if, if we focus on, on these guys. And I think one of the things that, that we have seen, uh, at least over the last five to six years, and for the most part, a lot of our uh, perennial grass pastures are, are you know, disappearing, if you will. Uh, at least they're, they're becoming more stagnant from the standpoint that uh, some of them have been converted into cropland. So a lot of those uh, traditional grazing resources that we used to rely on, the uh, the perennial grasses, uh, there's quite honestly a few acres of, of those to go around. So including these cover crops back onto some of this cropland that has been converted uh, is one of the things that, that we've been working on uh, to try to incorporate uh, livestock back onto the agricultural landscape, if you will. Now, the economic standpoint, um, you know, it's, it's feeding those animals is, is quite expensive. Um, 
So we think that that grazing uh, is going to be the most economical method uh, for grazing these cover crops as as an economic resource for many livestock producers. Okay. What are some of the challenges that livestock producers or growers might face when they're considering grazing cover crops? Yeah, and again, you know, that's that's kind of a kind of a, a double-edged sword there. Most of the uh, most of the growers, most of our our crop producers, uh, becoming more and more interested in in looking at some of these cover crops, uh, in particular from a reduction of uh, soil erosion and uh, water infiltration. Uh, some of those uh, advantages from the cover crops that that can happen quite quickly. Uh, over the years, as, as we've kind of moved away from these integrated systems and gotten livestock off of the landscape, uh, some of the concerns that our, our crop producers have, you know, what are these, what are these grazing animals? Are, are they reducing some of the effects that these cover crops have? Uh, and we're, we're, we're not, really, not really seeing that in some of our, some of our early research work. Uh, from, a, from a livestock standpoint, uh, you know, many of these many of these cover crops have been used as uh, annual forages for years and years and years. So we we know quite a bit about how to uh, how to manage those and and quite a bit what to uh, quite a bit of what to expect out of them. Uh, one of the big challenges that we have is that oftentimes uh, a lot of these cover crops aren't aren't planted uh, in close proximity to where the livestock production is. Okay, and so then if if proximity is a problem, uh, of course that means livestock producers are needing to find water sources and also how to easily transport or move cattle through paddocks, is that correct? That's one of that's one of the the big things is the cattle transportation, uh, the development of uh, water resources, and then fencing is is also a big one. Yes, for sure, for sure. So typically, we see growers wanting to utilize cover crops to extend the grazing season, whether that's in the fall or uh, starting it a little earlier in the spring. What might be some strategies uh, to to help extend that grazing season a couple extra weeks either way? Yeah, and you know, and, and you you mentioned that couple of weeks, and and I think that's very important because on the on the surface that doesn't seem like that is a a huge amount of time to worry about you know a a grazing season if you will, but. Some of the some of the the livestock producers that that we work with, they've identified two uh, critical areas of the year when they have forage shortages, uh, and one of them is in the fall, is in that time from when they uh, uh, some of their summer grazing uh, has ceased to happen. The the grass production has slowed down or stopped, and then the grazing is. I wouldn't call it used up, but you know they're they're looking to to move to some move to some different forage sources, uh, and one of that tippens or happens to be uh, corn residue. Uh, oftentimes, when summer grazing ends, 
uh, a lot of the corn residue grazing that they depend on is is not available. So there's a, a two to four week time in the fall that's important uh, where we could uh, match up some of this grazing. Uh, and it would have to be some of the early planted cover crops. Now the same thing happens on the other end in the spring when they're moving from corn stalks back out to their grass pastures. There's a, a two to four week time frame that occurs in the spring where they have a forage shortage. So, so both of those times a year, even though they're they're not uh, lengthy, uh, they are important uh, in that there is some need for uh, providing some grazing. And I mentioned uh, uh, earlier in that statement about uh, you know if the corn's not out yet, uh, the beans are probably not. Many of those cover crops are are not going to be available for fall grazing. So any of the cover crops that are available are going to have to have followed. Uh, Wheat uh, is probably the the safest one that we can expect some some growth from some cover crops. Uh, some of the early harvested corn silage, uh, we can get some uh, get some cover crop production in there in the fall. Although that is is not as reliable as it is after wheat. Uh, on the other end, in the spring, you've got a got quite a number of opportunities. You can have uh, especially those winter hardy small grains uh winter rye is is the most common one that we hear although triticale is is increasing in some use as well uh those can be planted after uh after soybean harvest and, and can be quite productive uh in the spring the reason that the spring grazing is important is because if there's some other forage that's available we can allow many of those grass pastures uh to have a little rest early in the growing season which is important if they were grazed late uh, in the fall, they're gonna need some additional rest coming out of the coming out of the winter uh, to get some of that early growth established. So, you know, all of this, all of this plays together. And even though it, it doesn't appear that that two weeks again is uh is an important time frame, it can be extremely important, both from an animal standpoint and also from a plant recovery standpoint in the spring. You're absolutely right. And from the, the livestock producer's perspective, every week they don't have to feed hay that they've purchased is a, a step in the right direction economically as well. Yeah, it's yeah, you know, it's and they've I've been in extension for a long time and the economists have always said that the highest cost of, of keeping a beef cow around is feeding her during the winter. That's absolutely right. So kind of shifting gears here a little bit um, for some of those growers who might be more um, focused on uh, growing crops necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, so how you kind of talked about triticale and some of those cover crop species, but um, are there other cover crop species that work well in a rotational system besides um triticale and, and rye? Uh, you know, there, there are a, a number of others. And again, depending on when the when the planting date is, I mentioned uh, wheat a little bit earlier. Uh, for those producers that are, are harvesting wheat, uh, there's still time uh, left during the growing season that they can work any number of uh, warm season cover crops in the sorghum sudan grasses, uh, pearl millet, um, the the foxtail millet, the German millets, uh, and then a number of broadleaves. Uh, also, the uh, you'll see some uh, 
Soybean planted occasionally, you'll see some uh, cowpea in there. Uh, sun hemp is, is another one that's gaining some use. So depending on when you're trying to trying to establish these cover crops is going to dictate the uh, going to dictate the species that are that are used. Okay. And then um, kind of taking that a step further then, with grazing cover crops, um, are there soil health benefits that can be gained? Uh, you know, the, I mean, I like to think of this, I'm trying to, to simple this down a little bit. That's, that's one of the things that I think back to one of the earlier questions that you ask about some of the challenges. One of the challenges uh, I think that we have as well uh, with these cover crops is, is that when we think about a cover crop, the reason we're planting that cover crop is to provide soil cover. Any forage production should be viewed as a uh, viewed as a secondary benefit. Okay, now flipping that a little bit, you know, if you're you're planting it for forage, uh, forage is your primary reason for planting that particular crop. But then the soil health benefits should be viewed as a uh, as a secondary benefit from the forage planting. Now, kind of where all that goes away is is that when you plant those cover crop seeds, they're not immediately ready to graze the uh, within the next day or two. So that all oh, four to six weeks of growth that we have uh, with these cover crops is going to allow some of the uh, going to allow some of the the soil coverage components to occur. So. You know, really what we're looking at is is we're looking at the reduction of soil erosion. We're looking at improvements in uh, soil quality. Uh, we're looking at improvements in water quality. We're looking at the uh, management of pests and diseases. Uh, we're looking at increased biodiversity. Uh, in some instances, we're looking at improved wildlife habitat. And then lastly, we're, we're looking at all of this uh, to provide some forage and grazing. So it's it's really difficult to to separate the benefits, and I, I really don't think that there are a difference in benefits. Uh, if there is one of the additional benefits that the grazing provides is just a more rapid recycling of the uh, of that plant material, the carbon that's located in there, and also the nutrients that are that are in that forage. So. You know, a lot of the a lot of the benefits, whether you're just planting a cover crop or you're planting a cover crop for grazing, are, are the same. But the grazing will speed up the uh, speed up the recycling of the carbon and then also the nutrients that are located in those cover crops. So it's it's still a benefit. Sure, sure. So now, um, kind of on the flip side of that. Weather is changing all the time, and the, the Midwest especially, um, I'm sure you've probably heard many growers talking about how the weather is just different now than it used to be, or, or it's changing. How do uh, those changing weather patterns impact uh, growers' ability to graze cover crops? Oh, that is... I don't. I don't know that I have a have a good answer for that question. I've uh, have been back in Nebraska since uh, summer of 2014. Uh, fall of 2014, fall of 2015, and fall of 2016 were were excellent years for growing fall cover crops. They were uh, warm. Uh, they were compared to this year. They were extremely wet. 
Uh, so those were very good years for uh, growing cover crops. Uh, 19, 20, and, and then, or 18, 19, and 20, you know, the falls have been a little on the dry side. Uh, we've had uh, colder weather coming in a, a little bit quicker, so our production of uh, cover crops for fall grazing hasn't been all that, all that great. Uh, one of the things that's critical for getting fall growth established is, is early planting. Okay, and so anything that delays the row crop harvest is going to delay planting cover crops after those row crops. And so the the risk associated with relying on uh, fall grazing after our more traditional row crops is, you know, I, I don't think that we can expect that with any any regularity, uh, even with the. Uh, even with the soybean, unless we're planting something that is a, an extremely early maturity, you know, a, a group zero or, or, or group one in our part of uh, the Western Corn Belt over here. And we've actually got some research where we're looking at planting some uh, group zero beans. But one of the things that we're looking is, is trying to maximize our grazing as, as best we can. So the trade-off is we're having to sacrifice some uh, sacrifice some grain production in order to incorporate grazing into this system. We've got our second year of cover crops planted, and and we've been pretty successful uh, this year, even with the limited moisture. So, you know, anything you plant in the in the fall, which is is typically dry here in the western part of the the Corn Belt, is going to be a a risky proposition. Kind of, kind of with that. One of the things that we also, I'll call it, kind of stumbled on a little bit, if you will. If you're, you're looking at at winter grazing with many of our fall cover crops, we've allowed them to grow through the fall, uh, be winter killed, and then to graze them during the winter. Uh, basically, when we would graze corn stalks. One of the things that we have found is is that because the quality of those fall grown cover crops is so high. Uh, even after they have been frozen and snowed on a couple of times, uh, they have lost some quality, but the the crude protein and the energy levels still in those cover crops are are still uh, high enough that they can support uh, some pretty decent gains in some in some growing beef animals. So I, I think just kind of understanding what the weather patterns may offer uh, and taking advantage of of what you they give you uh, with the expectation that it's likely you're not going to have uh, super great forage production each fall. Okay, good to know. So sometimes livestock producers may not have as much interest in grazing cover crops necessarily, or uh, Likewise, there might be crop growers who don't have livestock, but maybe they they do have cover crops that might be beneficial to livestock producer neighbors. Um, in a situation like that, uh, what might be some options that um, livestock producers or uh, crop growers should think about? Yeah, the, the couple of options that, that popped in my mind uh, are, are either uh, harvesting the cover crops as uh, dry hay, uh, or if there's the, the 
capability to harvest them as uh, as an ensiled forage crop. Uh, those are the those are the two big ones. The fall is you know, and you can find you know it's it's somebody will tell me you know that they've done it as soon as you tell them they don't. But but making dry hay in the fall is uh, is pretty hard to do. You've got to have some uh, pretty good weather conditions to to make dry hay late into the fall. Uh, making silage in the fall uh, most of that's going to be a, a little uh, too wet to properly ensile. Uh, so I think, you know, any anything uh, during the fall is going to be uh, primarily grazing based. As we move over into the end of the spring, uh, especially the, the later part of the spring, that kind of opens up some of the some of the opportunities on on harvesting, harvesting uh, forage in some different uh, different types of, of packages. Now, again, to, to get the yields that you would like uh, from a, a hay or a silage standpoint, uh, some of the planting is is likely to be delayed. You know, again, hay is going to be kind of hard to hard to make during the during the spring because typically the the humidities are a little on the high side. The temperatures are not great yet, uh, although you can uh, get some winds on occasion that will help your drying so even though you can make dry hay i think uh the capability to to make some silage you know bale silage in particular uh if there's a, a mechanism for doing that if especially some custom harvesters around may be able to, to look at making some bale silage so you know, you've got some harvested forage in uh, hay or silage in the spring, but you've also still have the have the grazing aspect. So fall is, is pretty well restricted to grazing. It kind of opens up a little bit in the spring to include hay and silage if you have those capabilities. So then how do livestock producers still ensure that the, the forages they're feeding their cattle when they're grazing or, or maybe even feeding in siled cover crops. How do they make sure that those are high quality? Yeah, that, that's just uh, the old three things that affect forage quality are maturity, maturity, and maturity. So, you know, and then the maturity is pretty easy to tell on, on many of these cover crops is once the seed heads uh, start to pop out, that's as uh, Quality is not going to do anything but go down uh, dramatically after that point, uh, especially when we're we're talking about these annual uh, the winter annual grain crops. As that seed head pops out, those guys are thinking about making grain, so they're all the nutrients and all the moisture going to be shoved up into that grain production, and so the grain will be there, but the forage quality will be. Uh, will be quite a bit lower. Um, you know, it, it does uh, compensate a, a little bit from just translocating uh, those nutrients from the from the plant to the grain, but it's, it's still uh, much better to think about harvesting, especially these uh, grasses that we would, uh, that we would use uh, would be a, uh, boot to early early heading uh that time of year they really move through those reproductive stages uh pretty quickly okay so in in your experience working with 
growers and livestock producers, what are some common mistakes you see that are made with grazing management and cover crops? Yeah, you know, the uh, the grazing's pretty easy. It's the management that, that gets to be the challenge. And and I think oftentimes, the uh, you know, the uh, I, I don't know that our, our expectations sometimes are are realistic because during the during the winter many of the producers you know they're forage budgeting and they're planning and you know they have a set date that they're they're going to possibly uh, run out of uh, hay for the winter feeding season uh, and then plan on grazing some of these cover crops but if it happens to have an extended cold period there and that plant growth is uh, slower uh, I think a lot of times beginning to graze too early uh, is, is I, I don't know that that's an issue more than a mistake because, you know, if, if you're out of uh, out of hay, you have to do something else. And if, if you've got some forage out there, then the, the no brainer is to go ahead and begin begin grazing that. But as, as these plants are still kind of coming out of the the winter, especially these winter hardy small grains. Uh, they're still needing some energy for a lot of that early growth, and they're they're getting that through photosynthesis. So removing a lot of those leaves is going to reduce the growth potential uh, of those grasses somewhat. So that kind of moves into the the idea there of of rotating um rotating them uh, around some different uh, different paddocks, which is is a good idea. Uh, in particular, from that early growth, just to give that that those pastures that were grazed early a chance to regrow. Now, you know, in a, in an ideal world, I think we would like to see the uh, see those grasses uh, about four to six inches tall uh, before grazing, uh, and not graze them any short than four inches. I think that would be ideal. They're grazed lower than four inches, especially in the early spring before it starts to warm up a lot. They will be kind of kind of slow to recover. So there is the possibility there that you can reduce uh, some long-term production. Uh, holding back a, a paddock that you're not grazing, uh, that once you move quickly through these other paddocks, uh, if you have a place that you can go to that hasn't been grazed, uh, that's going to buy you buy you a little longer grazing season there in the in the springtime. So the the early grazing is is one of the issues, and then grazing too short too early is another big issue. Okay, uh, you kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but I, I'd like to go more in depth on it. Um, what, what might be some visual cues for livestock producers or growers? to know when a field has had sufficient rest and it can be opened back up for grazing again. Yeah, you know, again, that gets back to that height um, that, that I had talked about uh, uh, that last set of comments I had. You know, if, if you, you, you know, I, I that, that four to six inches as an initial grazing height and then what I call a, a critical height you know is that don't go below four inches uh, and that's going to allow that to recover more quickly and just understanding that if you do take it down below that four inches it's going to be a little slower to get back to that target grazing height so 
you know, height is uh, is is something that's not foolproof, but it's certainly something that's that's very easy to very easy to see. And then if you're uh, out there every day or or every other day, you know, it's you get some warm temperatures. It, it is pretty easy to watch that grass grow. Sometimes it, it does recover uh, pretty quickly under the proper growing conditions. Okay, so um, how would a grower evaluate land, particularly more marginal fields, and assess whether or not it would be a good field to use for cover crops that could be grazed as forage or or hay? Those marginal fields, and again, you know, how do you define marginal? You're looking at at something... uh, Primarily in in uh, this part of the United States in the Western Corn Belt, that's that's going to be uh, droughty or or erodible. Uh, we do have a lot of uh, fields that are on on slope, you know. And if if they you have areas of the field that have lower uh, grain crop production, uh, it's likely that the uh, the cover crop production is is going to going to mirror that. That they're going to be lower as well. Uh, and again, this gets back to, to some of the economics as whether you use it for grazing or, or forages or hay. Uh, many of these marginal areas that are going to be lower uh, in in production uh, because of some kind of uh, restriction of, of plant growth that they have, those are likely going to be uh, better used for grazing. Uh, because the animals are not able to uh, not able to consume everything that is out there, uh, they trample a lot. They do consume a lot, but then most of that's deposited uh, back on the field, either as, as dung or urine. So you get that nutrient cycling on these marginal areas. Uh, if you harvest that as as hay, you're removing a, a lot of that production, opening that back up for. Uh, erosion, which was one of the reasons for planting it there anyway. So I think these marginal lands are probably, uh, you know, I, I don't know that they would be solely used for grazing, but they, they should certainly be used for grazing a high uh, proportion of the time. Okay. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Darren. This has been a great discussion on grazing cover crops, uh, but we are running short on time. So uh, before we wrap it up, where could our listeners go for more information about grazing covers? Yeah, probably the uh, easiest place to go is at uh, beef.unl.edu. In the the search bar, once you get on that page, you can type in uh, beef forage crop systems. Uh, and that will take you to uh, all the information that we've put together over the last five or six years on grazing cover crops and managing cover crops. Uh, there are is some information in there on uh, on lease agreements as well. So it it does cover uh, does cover uh, a lot of territory there from an agronomic standpoint, a nutrition standpoint, and also an economic. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Darren, for joining us and sharing all that great information. For more information about all things cover crops, visit us online at covercropstrategies.com.